Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the MTV Podcast, episode 91, presented and hosted by Worldwide Cyclery. This is Jeff, and this is going to be a bit of a different episode as normal. It's just going to be me hosting and interviewing my good friend, Nico Malali, who's a professional downhill World Cup racer with over 10 seasons. Actually, what is it, Nico, 12 seasons? Yeah, this season was my 12th season. Yeah, nice. So 12, 12 World Cup downhill racing seasons, which is incredible. Um, we're going to talk to Nico about this unique program he's got going for his race season this year, which is now he's actually designed his own bike and having it made in the U.S., and he's going to be racing that this year. So we're going to pick his brain on everything from suspension platforms, high pivot suspension, anything that could potentially be of use to kind of the common mountain biker that a, a World Cup racer could kind of hopefully demystify and kind of add context to and yeah all about his bike all about mountain bikes and all sorts of various stuff like that so it should be a very interesting and entertaining episode so without further ado nico how's it going great yeah stoked to be on this podcast with you jeff um we've known each other since we were racing as juniors so it's cool to make it to this point and uh, be able to talk about stuff like this yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, we've, we've, I can't even remember. I feel like we've known each other since we were children, which I guess we have. Makes, makes me feel old when I think back about when we were racing as juniors together and all that stuff. Doesn't seem that long ago. Yeah, true. That is true. So let's talk about your program this year. So traditionally, so what I guess for some context here, you've been on, Tell me if I'm right here. So was specialized, you were on specialized, then Trek, then YT, then intense. Is that right? Or Scott, I forgot Scott. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the first team I was on was specialized team America, which was a national team. Um, I raced with Kyle Strait, Cody Warren, and that was when I was 16. Um, it was, I was before I was old enough to race world cup. So I did all the U S national races, Crankworks, Whistler, um, Seattle, like the big races that you can do outside of a world cup. And then when I was old enough to ride world cups, I got onto Trek world racing team and raced with them for the first five years of my career. Then I raced for Scott for two years. And then I raced for YT for two years. And then I raced for intense for the past three years. Yeah, right. So all throughout that time, it's you've pretty much just been doing all of the elite level World Cup downhill racing, right? How come you never dabbled in any Enduro World Series stuff? Yeah, I've I've only done World Cups and then national downhill races throughout my career. Um, I'd love to race in EWS. It's just it's difficult to be uh, racing at the top level in both. And you see some guys that can cross like Ed Masters. Um, that can do both, which is super impressive, but there's definitely a learning curve to the EWS and it takes a pretty big commitment to train. The training I think is very different. Downhill is really short and intense. It's, um, a lot of sprint workouts, um, heavy weightlifting where enduro, you have to be on the bike for eight hours a day, a lot of climbing and then managing long efforts within that. So it's the, the training for downhill would kind of be compromised if you were training for EWS. And if you just took a downhill rider, I don't think you'd be able to do the full day of EWS riding. So, um, yeah, I just really have not wanted to bite off more than I could chew. And if I want, if I want to go 
if I'm going to go do it, I would like to be prepared. Um, so it's definitely on my list. There's, there's the two in the U S this year. I'm not sure if I'll have, um, the time to, to really get ready for those. Uh, they're, they're like right before the two weeks before world champs. That's the other thing is like, there's so many important races on my calendar that to, to take on a new project, getting ready to go do an EWS two week, two weeks before world champs or at any year before an important race that you're your focus of the whole year is on it's um it's just taken away potentially from that so it's that's been the the difficult thing to do both series but um man it's on my bucket list i love enduro riding and um i ride an enduro bike more than a downhill bike most most downhill riders do for training so um it would be cool to race one uh i watched some of the videos some of the head cams the tracks that have minute long uphills in the stage i'm not into that if they were all just tight tech uh gravity oriented um bike skill i would love it but um the climbing not even the climb to the stages but the the climbing in the in the race um man that looks brutal those guys are I think it's underestimated how fit those guys are. They're some of the fittest athletes to be able to put themselves through an effort like that and then ride some of the most technical trails in the world. It would be like racing uphill for two minutes and then dropping into Val de Sol World Cup track on a bike that has a lot less travel and capability. <laughs> that would be pretty gnarly. So uh, that's what those dudes do every weekend. So they're they're um like people have this they think ews is for washed up downhill riders or it's like less uh dangerous and gnarly i think it's i think probably that ship more. sailed but i think people did think that before you're right it probably has but really? I, I, huh. I, honestly i think um ews is is actually gnarlier than downhill the stuff that they're doing on those bikes is more technical and they're out there all day racing for 30, 40 minutes when we're racing for three minutes. So, and, and they get to see the trail once and we get to walk it four times and practice it for four days. Like, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's just a different thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was always impressed to see some guys like Ed Masters, like you mentioned, could kind of mix into both and do well at both. Because typically the downhill racers that have completely you know, when they do enduro, they just switch. They just completely abandon downhill and only do enduro. So it makes sense when you talk about the difference in the sport and the training and all of that. So yeah, I guess it's, it's smart of you to stay focused and not bite off more than you can chew there. Cause EWS does look like quite the challenge. For sure. So this year you've got something totally unusual. I think the last time on the podcast, I said it was the first time anyone's ever done this is as in des- like the racer designing their own bike is was I right? Has anyone ever done this or are you the first person to do this that you know of? Well, um, I think racers a lot of times have a big say in it, but there's always an engineer that's working on it for them. Um, the recent example of someone who's done this is my friend Isaac Leifson. He is from Norway and lives in Knoxville, Tennessee. He goes to UT and he designed and welded his own frame out of steel and went and raced the World Cup in Leger where he qualified and finished 38th. And then the World Cup in Snowshoe, he qualified and tried to backflip the finish line jump, which was the worst 
finish line jump to ever backflip. It was such like a flat wedge takeoff crashed, um, but almost, almost got around. So Isaac has, he did everything. He designed it, welted it, welded it, built it like everything himself, which was pretty cool. But that was like a very homemade privateer effort. Um, the Atherton's have their brand with Atherton bikes where they gave feedback to Dave Weagle, who they're using the DW platform, who designed them the bike that he thought they would like based on their feedback. So I'd say my project is somewhat different to both where, um, maybe in between where like I found a custom frame builder, Frank, the welder to make my frames for me. Um, but I did all the design and chose all the kinematic and the layout and everything myself, and then leaned on a manu- a guy who does manufacturing to build the bike to be as I intended to use it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Well, that makes sense. So I was I was semi right on that. I guess some other people have done something similar, but maybe not exactly the same. But it is a really cool and unique take because obviously the traditional way is, you know, these racers get sponsored by a brand on their team and that's that's what they're given, right? And I mean, they obviously like you said they can provide feedback and help modify that bike, but traditionally they're not the actual people designing the whole thing through and through like you are. So yeah, that's that's going to be an interesting project to take on this year, which is just really cool and interesting. And, and it's rad to see when you you know talked about this when you announced it earlier. I guess would be like earlier in the month, Jan one. Um, yeah, people were stoked. I think you could. Were you surprised at the feedback? It seemed like people were just grinning ear to ear, myself included, because it just seems like a really cool idea. And I think people were also, I again, myself included, happy to see you doing it because you're kind of the person that it really makes sense for with how much of a bike nerd you are and how into the stuff that you are it's like the perfect fit for you and who you are as a racer and kind of your passions and hobbies so yeah what did you think were you were you surprised by the feedback you got in that first week you announced this project yeah i was definitely surprised how how well it was received uh i thought it would be a cool thing like i have a pretty good gauge on the industry and what type of things go well and what type like how something would be received and i guess i i plan to announce it on january 1st because it's the first day of new contract season it was also a weekend and a holiday where all the big teams that were going to do announcements were probably not going to be ready to go on january 1st so i would have my own day where i wouldn't be the same as canyon and santa cruz and the other ones that were announcing and I thought doing it on the holiday would be good because people would be at home, maybe sitting sitting around um, on their day off and be able to take a look at my post and, and look at some of the pictures about it and see what was going on. So I thought it was good timing. Um, I joked with some other people who complimented me from bike brands that I had my whole marketing team on it. <laughs> me and Logan <laughs> did the whole thing ourselves, which I was super proud of. <laughs> like we, Logan made all the videos and, um, took the photos and, um, like he, he doesn't really have, it, it kind of fits along with our whole theme where we just bought a video camera during the pandemic when races were canceled and started filming stuff because I, I thought, you know, why not? Like, let's just figure it like people, people can figure it out. It's just a tool. If you have the vision to do it, like we can figure out how to use it. And we ended up improving our videos over the, every couple of weeks we would put them out and, um, led us 
to this position to be able to make this video series about the bikes and um, do the release ourselves. And it was just cool that we did it all in-house DIY sort of. And I think it fits very well with the program. But also, like you said, I think it was fitting for me to do. I'm really into it. And um, I feel like I, at least for myself, like that's the cool thing. I'm not designing a bike for other people or saying what you should do. It's uh, it's for me. So I get the final say on my bike. And um, the decision is how to make it work best for me racing it. So to talk about that, I, I feel like I'm well qualified based on the past 12 years of racing with all these teams and working with different engineers and learning what worked and what didn't for me. And um, I feel like I'm pretty knowledgeable because I've done the research and um, I, I see what other brands are doing. I watch what works for, for other teams racing. And um, I, I felt like speaking about this, it was something I was passionate about and I was pretty knowledgeable about. So um, I think it was a good fit. And if some, I said before, if somebody else was doing it, I would love to follow along and watch it. And it's just very interesting. So for me to be able to do it is something that I'm really proud of. Yeah, that's cool, man. I mean, I'm, I'm excited as ever to see how the season pans out. And I've always, you know, I've, I've complimented you before on just how well-spoken you are in something as simple as your Instagram posts. Like even when you made that post about the signature gloves you made with hand up and all the little different tweaks and everything. And then just the random times when you have posted on Instagram in the past and wrote in these nice long thorough captions about bike parts and your thoughts on them. I've just liked it because I, I think you I think you do something in a way the way you speak and talk about stuff is you really you just you have a good way of explaining things and especially explaining it to your particular use case and making it clear that it's your use case and your opinion and here's why, which I, I think is kind of it's hard a lot of a lot of people who are professional mountain bike reviewers are, are not always the best at try, you know, explaining in, in such a manner. Um, but yeah, I've always admired how you do that. So I'm excited to see, uh, you know, how this pans out this year, how you're going to document it on your YouTube and Instagram and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to be cool. I, I'm excited. And, and you actually just, so just recently made an Instagram post talking a little bit about the difference between the two bike designs that you have. So you had, yeah. So tell me about that. So you've got two designs that you're testing back to back is the only difference, the, the high pivot, or is there more than that? Yeah. So I have these two frames, um, and, and really the only difference that I wanted to make was the moving the main pivot up. So one is a considered a high pivot. It's, it's a very low version of a high pivot and one is a standard pivot height bike. And, uh, to have an apples to apples comparison, I, I kept everything equal except for moving the main pivot up. Um, the front triangles are the same aside from that one pivot location um the yeah the chain stay the seat stay it's all the same the main pivot yoke that the either pulley mounts to is different to be able to hold the either pulley but other than that everything's the same i uses a longer rocker link to try to keep the kinematic as similar as possible um, one thing that the average person might not realize is that when you move these pivots even a millimeter it changes the leverage that's on the entire suspension system. So the way that it pushes the shock is going to be different based on how the axle 
is pulling on the suspension system and moving any of the points, it changes everything. So uh, when I moved that pivot up, I tried to try to keep everything, all the numbers, all the outputs as close as possible um, for an apples to apples comparison so that I could only change the variable of axle path and pedal kick, which is related to the either pulley um, with everything else being equal. So I, all I had to do was um, change the rocker link to a longer rocker link to keep that all the same. Um, but I think for a high pivot to a standard pivot height bike, it's probably the closest that I've seen most times when a brand is coming out with a new bike. And, and even in my case, like I rode the first bike and there's definitely a lot of things that we could have improved on, um, even like hardware um, that we made it very simple for the first frame. And I would have liked to improve that when I ordered the second frame, but I didn't want to have anything that was, Oh, it's better just because we used better bolts or wh- whatever it was. Um, and I think that most brands that have come out with a high pivot bike, it's um, it's the snapshot of where they are in their development process. And a lot of other things may be better than their last bike aside from the high pivot. So of course the new bike's going to be better. They've learned, took everything they've learned and put it into that. Um, and I just wanted this to be as few variables as possible when I was testing these two frames back to back. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's a much more scientific approach to it than what a, a typical bike brand would do because they're not necessarily trying to do a scientific test between two different suspension designs. They're just trying to make better bikes and sell different bikes as they, as they evolve everything and refine all the various different things. So yeah, that's, that's really cool. I like that. I like that scientific take on the testing there. So what was, what were the results? You kind of summed those up in an Instagram post, but what were the results of riding those two bikes back to back the, you know, with as many variables as possible, exactly the same aside from that pivot location, what were kind of your takeaways on how each one of them performed compared to the other? Yeah. So they both had areas where they excelled and areas where I guess, not that they didn't excel, but that one bike was better than the other. And honestly, I'm not really that surprised by the results. Uh, the high pivot was really nice in rough straight lines. Um, any, the rougher it was, the better for that bike. It, it made terrain that was uncomfortable to ride through feel more comfortable it made you feel more planted and safe in those situations. Um, the low pivot bike felt like it generated speed quicker. Um, as far as pumping, um, obviously pedaling, there's more efficiency there, which isn't that much of a consideration in a downhill bike, but whenever you wanted to maintain speed or generate speed, pump into a berm, a backside of a jump, um, even just cornering in general, carrying speed out of turns, the low pivot felt like it did that better. It felt like it was a more efficient bike. So um, it was really course dependent. And the two of my bikes are not that drastically different. I'd say the low pivot is as high of a low pivot as I could reasonably get. And the high pivot is as low of a high pivot as I could fit a 14 tooth idler pulley to the chain ring. So 
the two bikes are pretty close. So I expected that the results wouldn't be drastically different. I would say I could race either one. Um, it's just, yeah, dependent on the situation. And so in my testing process, I tried to ride a variety of different tracks. I've got Windrock that has 10 good downhill tracks on it that are all a little different. Uh, we have a pretty good test track at Canuga and I rode it, um, when I was home for Christmas in Pennsylvania as well. on one of the tracks that I grew up riding on at Mount Penn. So I rode it and it's winter time on the East coast. So there isn't that many places you can take a downhill bike to ride. But, um, I did try to ride it on as various, uh, as much of a very variant of terrain as I could. And, um, my, my testing process was to do two warm up runs, two runs on one bike, two runs on the other, two runs on one bike, two runs on the other. So, um, timing all the runs, not really timing the warm up runs, but, um, timing all the runs and, and making those swaps that way. A lot of times I find, especially if I'm riding a track that I haven't ridden in a while, I get faster as the day goes on. So I don't want to just be fastest on my last run. And all I learn is that I learned the trail and I got faster every time I went down it. That's not really helping me learn anything mm-hmm. about the bike. So being able to swap back and back and back and back. A lot of times I take the last two runs on each bike. The first two are kind of getting used to it. And then the second set are more um, comparable. So I, I just try to get as many data points as I could, as many different days doing this test process. And sometimes I'd start on one bike, sometimes I'd start on the other, mainly to do with which one I finished on last time so I didn't have to take it apart and swap them. Um, that way I could just get, as like I said, as many data points as I could. And not really to my surprise, they were never more than a second, a second and a half off each other. Um, and and the times when the high pivot was better was fast, straight, um, off the brakes, just bowing down rocks. And it it wasn't really that much faster. Um, it was a little bit in certain times, but I would say that one, when it was faster, it was less of an advantage as like the high, the low pivot would be, yeah, for sure, a little rougher to ride noticeably through those sections, but pretty close, I would say within a second on those times when the high pivot was faster. And then the, the trails that had more tight corners, spots where you had to carry speed out of a corner where the bike being nimble was important. The low pivot design felt like it was faster through there and just really accelerated and you could pump into a turn and, and carry speed out of it. Um, and, and in section, the tighter tracks, sometimes that bike would be a second, a second and a half faster than the high pivot. So, um, and for me, like timing is the, I'm racing. So whatever the clock says is going to be the determining factor. And it's uh, one thing that's a consistent gauge to measure it by. Um, but I did take into consideration, like I, I, I wrote down my notes on how they felt and the, the feel is that, um, yeah, the high pivot definitely takes the edge off. It, it's a more stable bike to ride, but it's not as easy to throw around. It's not as nimble. So I don't know. Most World Cup tracks, you are on the edge of 
like you want that extra stability and comfort. They're super fast. They're you're on the the edge of the limit of how fast you can go. So it's nice to have somewhat of a comfort feeling, but you're also racing. So you want to be taking into consideration a bike that's going to be faster. Um, I don't know for the for the average person to to kind of compare it. Like you could do a lot of things to make your bike feel more comfortable that aren't necessarily going to be faster. You could run softer suspension, less tire pressure. Um, a lot of people have said an e-bike feels stable because it's so heavy. And these are all things that like, yeah, they make a comfortable feeling, but when you're racing, they might not be the fastest thing to where like a bike that maybe feels like it's more twitchy or less stable. Um, like, like in any racing sport, the, the, the fastest setup might not be the easiest to ride. So there's, um, the clock does a good job of sorting that out and, and telling you which was the best. Um, so, so far in my, in my testing, that's kind of <laughs> where I've got to. And, um, yeah, I think from, from my skill set, I could use a bike that turns faster. I'm pretty good at riding through straight lines fast. Like over the years, I'd say that's one of the things that I'm best at is like mobbing down fast straightaways and running stuff over. Um, but being agile and getting out of corners quick is an area where I feel like I could improve. So in that, taking that in consideration, maybe for me racing, the low pivot is going to be the way to go. Um, but I've got two races coming up in Costa Rica in, uh, one of them's the second week in February. One's the third week, the Costa Rica open. And then the Pan Am continental championship are, um, two chances I'm going to have, I'm going to take both bikes, um, get them on a racetrack. There's a lot that you can learn when you're on a racetrack and, um, compare them more through, through that situation and, and see how they go. But, um, yeah, so far, those are some of the things that I've felt and, and learned. Yeah, that is, it's pretty interesting, but you're right. I mean, it's, it's kind of what you hear a high, high pivot is supposed to do. It seemed like it did that for you. Well, so what's the, what is the decision in terms of which one you're going to race more? Do you, do you kind of foresee yourself throughout the year racing a different bike just based on the course? Or do you think you'll just after a few races, just totally nix one of them and only ride the other one? So my plan is to take what I learned from these two bikes and design a, I don't want to call it final design, but, um, let's say a third bike that is, I'll get several of these made that are a more refined version. Um, that may not be exactly the high pivot that I have now, or exactly the standard pivot height bike I have now, but, um, taking the, the hopefully the, the best out of each one that I've learned and going forward with that next design. Whenever I've tried to race a bike that was tailored to a track, not being familiar with it outweighed the fact that the bike was maybe optimized for that course. So throughout the season, I'd like to be able to race the same bike that I know that I is very predictable, um, that I know inside and out. So my plan is to just use this time in the off season to get myself to that point and then, um, order a small production run of however many frames I'll need for the season and, um, proceed with, with one design. 
Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I definitely get the the comfortability aspect. I mean, something that I've always tried to advise other mountain bikers on is usually what's most comfortable to you is what's going to be the most fun to ride. And, you know, aside from you, who's making a career out of racing, most mountain bikers are just doing it for fun. And if you're trying to maximize fun, then typically what's comfortable is going to lead you to riding in a state of flow and having a good time. And that's kind of where that debate over common mountain bikers, oh, what's better, flats or clipless? It's like, well, what, you know, regardless of what's better here, what, what do you feel comfortable with? Because if you feel totally uncomfortable being clipped in, then it's absolutely not better ever. So, you know, do what's comfortable. So I, I definitely kind of understand what you're thinking about there and when it comes to comfortability and familiarity of that bike. So that's cool. And do you think, I mean, given the results you've had so far with that, you know, high pivot version of your bike, do you think you'd ever bother testing an even higher pivot? Well, I've ridden the common saw, um, and the Trek. The Trek is also a higher pivot. I'd say every bike is a higher pivot than my high pivot. And whenever you make, when you're making a bike design, when you make a certain, I'd say each kinematic point, whether it's the, the braking characteristic, the axle path, the pedal kick, the leverage ratio, say they're all dials. When you turn one dial up a lot, it compromises the other ones. So, and, and you can do things like adding gadgets to the bike, say a floating brake mount, or, I mean, an either pulley is one, the high pivot would be really difficult to ride and work with the drivetrain without an either pulley, um, to, to mount the, to, to direct the chain line. So at the more of those things that you add, the more you can kind of decouple certain characteristics to where normally axle path and pedal kick are directly related with an either pulley you can kind of fine tune that and separate it the, the you know the chain ring is mounted to the center of the it's it's off of measured off the center of the bottom bracket so that you can't really put that in this any different place whereas with an either pulley you can put that kind of wherever you want um and the same with the floating brake, you can, it doesn't have to be mounted to whatever link is near the axle. It can be mounted off of a different point to get the braking characteristic you want. But the more of those things you add to the bike, the, the more complicated it gets. And I think as simple of a design as you can, you can use will give you the less, the least headache, um, the least things that could go wrong. Like when racing, the least things that could go wrong, um, so that's definitely a consideration of mine is like balancing performance with simplicity and the two are pretty opposite things. So it's, uh, it's a difficult balance, but I guess what I was getting back to is that, yes, I've ridden a few other bikes that are higher pivot than mine. And the trade-off is, um, they make some pretty, some pretty drastic compromises. They feel much less nimble. The higher pivot you get, the bike grows as it goes to the travel. And, um, they do, they do feel like monster trucks when you go through rock gardens. Uh, a common saw is a pretty high single pivot design and it's very confidence inspiring to ride. Like you get on that bike and you feel like you can run over anything, um, if you get out of control, you know, you're going to get back under control, but the trade-off is that it's not very agile. The bike, um, isn't nimble. It doesn't corner great. Um, 
it feels heavy to to kind of move around um and and most high pivot designs have a higher anti-rise which is the braking number so the suspension loads the shock as you apply the brake and that makes the shock or the the rear end feel stiffer and a lot of downhill tracks are very steep where you're braking most of the time even even when you're even the best riders in the world um, are, are slightly dragging the brake, trail braking through a lot of the course. And if that influence on the suspension system makes your shock feel stiffer, it, it loads the spring, then it compromises the way the bike works. And I think it's something to consider for downhill racing, especially. Um, and, and like I said, the higher the pivot in general, that makes the braking characteristic feel stiffer. So that was something that was really important to me that I wanted to try to avoid. I, I prefer the bikes with a lower anti-rise number where the braking feels more active and open. Um, so I don't think I would go for a higher pivot based on the ones that I've ridden. I thought mine was a more neutral design that was taking the advantages of the high pivot design, um, a, a fairly rearward axle path and uh, decoupling the pedal kick from axle path, having a bike with my either pulley placement has virtually no pedal kick, um, in like the gear you would normally, I, I measured all the bikes equally in the 14 tooth rear cog, which is most of the time when I'm riding in, when I'm on descents, um, whether you're on a trail bike or a downhill bike, that's a good average gear to measure it in. And the high pivot bike has 1.5 degree of pedal kick, which I would be shocked if anyone could notice the difference between 1.5 and zero. So it's very low. Um, and that makes the bike feel pretty smooth. So I felt like my, my design was taking advantage of the advantages of a high pivot, but without as many of the compromises. So maybe it doesn't have those superpowers, but it also doesn't have the compromises that come with them so i don't think i want to go higher than my bike but um that's that's based on what i've learned so far yeah so do you think so all the all the things that you've noticed the sort of differences in bike feel and handling when you go high pivot does that become less noticeable and less relevant as bikes get less travel right so downhill bike is kind of a unique use case because it has eight inches of travel but if you take if you were doing the same type of testing on say a six inch travel bike or even a four inch travel bike would you would there be less sort of large differences in the way you'd notice a high pivot design versus a standard pivot design um that would be hard to answer i've i've definitely ridden a few of them and they they do have a noticeable difference i would say in proportion to the amount of travel they have, um, like the difference between a downhill bike and any 160 mil travel bike, they're going to feel different They're and, and not just because of their pivot location, but just the, the intended use of the bike. Um, a downhill bike is optimized for only going downhill. Whereas, a any bike that has to climb has a lot of other things to consider. But in saying that, I think that the differences would be proportionally the same. You would see the same benefits to a, a, a lesser degree 
if you were u- using the same design on a shorter travel bike. Hmm. Yeah, that's cool. So if, if there's kind of the, you know, average mountain biker out there and considering a new enduro bike or trail bike, do you think that a high pivot would make more sense for someone, one of these riders that says, Hey, you know, I'm not really a, a poppy, jumpy, pumpy type of guy. I'm, I'm pretty planted and stable and just want the bike to feel comfortable in rough terrain. Do you think if like that's sort of their preferences and what they're going for, they might want to consider a high pivot versus on the other hand, if you have a rider who's kind of the opposite, it's like, well, you know, I'm fine going in a straight line and I really want my bike to feel active and agile and playful and and really energetic when I pump it, would they want to maybe then make sure they kind of steer their brain towards a non-high pivot design? Because it does seem like so many more brands were introducing high pivot designs for trail and enduro bikes that people are starting to question, oh, is this one way better than the other? And the thing is like with most things in mountain biking, well, it's not necessarily better, it's just different. And then you kind of need to know because it's different, why might you want it and why might you not want it based on your preferences and what you want out of the bike? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think these bikes, it's hard to say better or worse. It has a different intended application. It has, um, the, whoever was designing mm-hmm. it had a different goal in mind of what he wanted the bike to do. So yes, the high pivots do some things amazingly. And then there's other situations where, like I said, the lower pivot bikes excel. So t- depending on what each person, what type of terrain they ride, what type of rider they are, um, what, what they're, if they're planning to race, if they're planning to ride recreate recreationally, there's, there's everybody's situation is different. I wouldn't say any two people have the same exact, um, spec list of what they're looking for out of their bike. So in my opinion, um, you can't put every high pivot in the same bucket either. Um, a lot of them are different. You mm-hmm. can just, just as you can tune every, every low pivot bike, like high pivots are a fairly, I wouldn't say they're new because they've like Canfield had one 20 years ago, but they're for the current trail and enduro market. Yeah. They're, they're pretty, um, they're a pretty hot item right now, I'd say. Um, but you, just as you can't put every one of these high pivot bikes in the same bucket you couldn't put every standard pivot height bike in the same bucket either they're they're all different and based on the design yeah, and what the in, intended use was that their designer had um but in general i would say what you will feel out of a high pivot and this is just to generalize it would be that yeah they will feel more comfortable and planted on the trail they will um i guess dumb down the trail like if there's sections that feel like they're really rough or you feel on the edge of your stability level these bikes will make that feel um just easier to ride and and like you are in more control when you're going through those sections um so if if that's if that's the type of stuff that you like, if you like riding rough, um, they, they make square edge bumps feel a lot nicer. Um, and if you ride a lot of that stuff, then, then these bikes can have like a really nice feel going through that type of terrain. I would say that if you're, if you're more into, uh, I, I don't know, jib type riding where you like to really like slash the bike in tight turns, um, play it, play with the bike a lot 
pop off of stuff. Um, jumping, especially these bikes kind of feel like they're very dead. Um, they're not as playful. And I mean, that's the, like, if you're, if you're racing, if you're going fast, that's what you want. You want the bike to feel dead. You want it to make the trail feel numb. But if you're riding and riding for fun and want to really push on the bike and get it to pop out of turns, get it to jump off stuff, um, bikes like this. And like I said, not every high pivot bike is like that, but in general, the advantages are that they, they dumb down the trail and they make it feel more comfortable for you to ride. Yeah. Cool. I love it, man. This, this has turned into a lot of high pivot talk, but I think that's really useful because I feel like a lot of the questions that, you know, we're fielding these days and even just myself personally, people are just always going, I pivot, I pivot, I pivot. And, um, there's just a lot to it. And then there's a lot to explain and talk about. And it's cool to, to, talk to you about it, who's obviously has a ton of knowledge and experience and also done some really intricate testing of your own bikes that, you know, high pivot versus regular. So that's awesome. Well, moving on from just high pivot stuff, what do you, what, what has been kind of the most surprising thing that you've found while making your frames? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I can't say that there's one big surprise that I wasn't expecting. And, and this was an amazing discovery. Um, but I think looking back on it, sitting here now, having ridden both of my bikes and seen the idea come to life is that the bikes actually worked. Like I, I thought it would be a few (laughs) iterations of trial and error to get the bikes to work. I thought my kinematic was good, but like anything, you can have a great design in theory or my, my, file on my computer looks like it will work but it's a whole different thing to ride it down the trail and it work in a real life situation and um from the first try like i I owe a lot to frank because he chose all the tubing he um he he did all the welds and knew where to put gussets on the bike to make it stronger um he and a big thing too to consider with bikes and and mountain bike chassis is the flex like for sure the stiffest one isn't better and for sure the flexiest one isn't better there's a sweet spot and i'd say depending on each person that feel might be different because the rider is a big variable your weight your speed the type of terrain you're riding it on um and i told frank who i like he he's watched me race um, he knows what my intended use is, and he chose this material. It's 6061 aluminum, the most common material used for mountain bikes. Maybe other thing, maybe now carbon is, but for a long time, that was the most common material used. Um, and he chose the wall thicknesses, where to put gussets, uh, the hardware, the bearings, all those things that I was like, I don't really care about it other than I want it to work. Like this is my kinematic. This is where I want all my suspension points. And this is where I want my geometry and the rest. I just don't want to even think about, like, I want to make sure that it just doesn't give me any headache. I don't want to be bummed on my design because we had the wrong bolt or the wrong bearing. Like I just want it to work as intended. And Frank made that happen. And it is a very, like everything the whole bike just works great. Um, it, 
I, I couldn't say if it's too flexy or too stiff. Like if somebody was like, okay, here's the first one, benchmark it. Should we go stiffer or flexier? Where would you go? It's really hard for me to say. Like I think it's, I, I think I could race the one that I have and it's, it's just right. Um, there's, there's no situation where I come into a loaded turn. And I'm like, man, this thing is really flexing in this turn. And there's also no situation where I'm in rough chattery terrain where I think the bike feels rigid. So I think he got it really good with that. But yeah, I guess the biggest surprise is like, uh, sometimes I'm riding through sections of trail where I'm like, damn, this bike works really good. Like, surely this couldn't have been this easy. Like, <laughs> I thought it would... How, how could I design this bike on the first try and it worked so good? It was kind of eye-opening to me. Like I, I really thought it would take um, a few iterations to to do it. And and for sure there's stuff that I can improve, but I could race the one I have now and I feel super comfortable on it. So um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's some... Yeah, that's cool. So there was just less... Less elusive alchemy to the whole design process than you may have anticipated initially. Yeah, I think there's some perception that there's there's a reason why somebody couldn't do it themselves, or there's um, black magic going into these bike designs, and and um, I don't think there's as much as as there um, is perceived to be. I think for sure to to produce them on a scale where you can deliver 10,000 units around the world that takes a lot of a lot of effort um and for sure those guys would say oh yeah you made one bike that works great good for you <laughs> so um yeah but yeah but I, I mean I am, <laughs> am proud to have done that and I think that um it I, I was just surprised that it worked well yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I mean, I think, um, you know, talking to you about it in the early days, like you, you, you always mention outputs, right? You're kind of looking at various different things for outputs and then how a design can achieve it, which I think isn't, uh, what's the reality of it, obviously, in, in a it's more simple manner to look at it than I think might meet the eye as someone who's new to the sport and seeing all these different frame designs. And cause you know, imagine coming into mountain biking as a sport, as a, a total newbie, and you see one bike and the shock goes vertically and it's close to the C tube. And you see another bike that is a competitive bike to it with the same sort of geo numbers and specs and everything, but the shock is up there by the top tube and it's horizontal. You'd be like, well, does it ride entirely different because the suspension design looks entirely different? And the answer is obviously no, but coming into the sport, it's it's almost bewildering to see all of these different suspension platform designs. And then the reality is that they all actually work really similarly to each other. So it's, um, I don't know. I think, I think the way you, you looked at it, right. It's like what you talked about earlier is just, you look at the outputs and the outputs are kind of what matter. And there's like different ways to achieve the design. So yeah, what would, if you, if you had to explain that to someone who was just entering the sport of mountain biking and they said, Hey, Nico, you know, I'm trying to buy my first mountain bike. I'm new to it. Uh, why is, why are some shocks vertical some are horizontal and all these frame designs are totally different? Like what, what's going on here to all these bikes ride differently? Like what would you, how would you try and explain that to them? And in, 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 you know, in the most clear, concise way. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another tough question too. Um, and, and for sure, if they're just getting into it, like a bike that they, that, that they like, that they can go ride as much as possible is going to be the right bike for them. Um, but, I, I think, yeah, it is confusing. There's so many different layouts and you don't see it in 
in other industries as much, but in mountain biking, it's, it's some days I think it's so cool that there's so many different approaches to it and that brands are different and not every bike's the same. And other days, I think if we could all just work in the same direction and make slight improvements on the same stuff, we would be so much further ahead than constantly having to come with a brand new design. But I mean, it's, it's the, it's the beauty and the downfall of, of our industry, I guess. Um, but to explain it, I guess every design, it, it gives you outputs on what are called the kinematics of the suspension platform. And the, the probably the most noticeable one would be the leverage ratio, which is the ratio of axle movement to shock movement. And the more leverage the bike has, it makes the bike feel more active and um, the, the shock will, I guess with the same spring, it'll be softer. So if you imagine you're trying to pry open a door and you have a, a pry bar, the closer you grab it to the door, the less leverage you have. The further away you, you grab, pull this bar, the more leverage you have. And the linkage system that the suspension platform goes through, say the axle is what you're pulling on, the the linkage system gives it mechanical advantage to create a different amount of leverage that's being put on the shock. Um, so bikes aren't these days that that drastically different because shocks work best in a certain range and shock makers say our shocks work best within this window. So you don't see anything that's too far off the wall, um, especially in trail bikes In downhill bikes, you see some more variants. Um, but the difference in that is, um, is something that could be different across different bike manufacturers. Um, and then the amount that it progresses, which is the leverage ratio that it starts with and the leverage ratio that it ends with will be different. So a bike should be a little bit more leverage in the beginning to make it feel supple, to make it feel like it tracks the ground well, but then ramp up at the end of the stroke to have require less leverage and more force to push the shock so that it doesn't just bottom out. And that change in leverage ratio is the progression. And it's working together with the spring force, which is either an air or a coil spring that as it's compressed requires more force um, to, to continue to progress it. So the, the leverage ratio and the spring force kind of work together. Um, and then other kinematics that are interesting to consider and on a trail bike is very important is the anti-squat, which is when you're pedaling how that affects, how that chain tension affects the way that the shock is being pushed. So, um, well, not the way it's being pushed, but the effect on the suspension platform. So the, a bike that has a higher anti-squat will feel like it stiffens under pedaling. And a bike that has a lower anti-squat will feel like it bobs under pedaling. And I think maybe some people have ridden bikes that have had both of these situations. And the general consensus would be that a bike that was stiffer would be better, but too much of anything isn't good. Um, 
if it's super stiff, it's not going to get traction if you're climbing on technical sections. Um, climbing on roots and rocks, you want a bike that still is active when you're pedaling it. So um, there's, yeah, I'd say different bike manufacturers have different opinions on what is the nice number there. Um, and then another thing is the the braking influence, the anti-rise, which is kind of similar to the anti-squat, but under braking, what, how the suspension system is being affected. And if it's a lower number, it'll be more active feeling. And if it's a higher number, it loads the spring. So it will be a more stiffer feeling. So these are all effects. They're outputs of the linkage system. And even bikes that use the same design, moving the pivots, even just a millimeter could change everything and some more than others. But, um, in general bikes that use shorter links have see a see a greater change by moving these pivot locations than bikes that use longer links longer links are more consistent but um they're also flexier so there's there's trade-off in um design as well um and and for me i like to look at the outputs of the bike more than what suspension design they're using. And you could use the same suspension design to get two completely different outputs, or you could use two completely different suspension designs to get the same output. Um, some are a more complicated complicated way of getting there, and some are a more simple way of getting there. So um, it's hard to say because a lot, of sus- a lot of bike manufacturers don't publish all their suspension kinematics, like they do their geometry. I, I kind of wish they would. Um, but the information is also very overwhelming yeah, cool. for the average rider. Like if you're just getting into it, you don't need to see these these uh, graphs of shock leverage, <laughs> progression, true. and anti-rise and anti-squat. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's a lot of information and it's a lot of physics, math equations that you don't necessarily need to take it to if you're buying your first bike um so yeah it's it's just like i said it's a cool thing in our industry that everything's different um but like but sometimes it would be nice if we're all working the same direction the you see in a lot of other industries like motocross bikes they all use the same linkage design on across all the manufacturers and i don't think that they really care to be different they're just looking at what works the best what's the most consistent thing that we can manufacture to give the consumer the best experience and being different is not a consideration whereas in mountain biking it is and also the different engineers at different brands have their own opinion of why they think that their design is the best to use for their application so um i think that's a lot of information uh for the average rider but uh don't <laughs> that, yeah that is that is don't be afraid just uh if you can i i would encourage people to go to a demo like if you can go and test ride a bike um yeah that's you'll, what i always tell people just ride things yeah you can learn so much a lot of times if if, if i've been testing bikes for um other t- teams in the past i i kind of won't want to know the information before I ride it, I will want to just ride it. And then after 
learn what the differences were. So that way you can have an honest feel on it. So yeah, if people are in the market to buy a new bike, just go test ride some stuff. And also you can make such a big change with parts and um, even a shock makes more difference a lot of the times than the frame. And with, with like with my designs, I tried to push the shock as consistently as I could. And then if I wanted to change from track to track, I could do it with a clicker on the shock or a different shock tune. And I would say that if most bikes these days are within the working windows that the shock manufacturers provide. So if you have a preference, you can get pretty much anything you want with the shock tune you know, with, with obviously some limitations, but um, yeah, you can't just ride a bike with one tune and make no changes to, to try to set it up for yourself and judge it off of that completely. If you're, if you're in tune with being able to set the bike up the way you want, then you can kind of make any bike act in the characteristic that you're looking for. Yeah, that's cool. It's a great perspective on it. That That is a ton of information to digest, but I, I totally agree with you that riding a bike is the most important thing. And I think what's, what's fun about mountain biking is you can come into the sport as a novice and ride a few different bikes, see what makes sense for your use case and preferences and what you enjoy and, and let that evolve over the years as you continue to be a, you know, more serious mountain biker. And, and it's a fun sport to learn about. I mean, cause you can go into it as a novice and just ride casually on the weekends and have a good time. And then you can take it as far as someone like you, who is literally designing his own bikes and doing scientific tests to split test one version versus the next, which is, <laughs> and anywhere in between, which, which is just, it's just cool. It's just cool that there's so much depth to the sport, um, and, and complexity to it. But at the same time, you can also just go you know, buy a bike and have a great time. And at the end of the day, it is about having fun, which is, yeah, there, there's a lot to it, but it's, it's a fun sport to learn about because there is so much depth to the whole thing. So yeah, good stuff. Do you think, so I guess this is the last question here to wrap up on, will your frame, because you, clearly you've expressed a lot of knowledge in this topic. Do you, do you think your frame will ever come to production at some point? Um, it's something that is a, a dream of mine. Um, uh, I, right now I'm focused on just trying to make this thing work as well as I can for me to race this season and refining these two designs that I've started with and going forward with that third design with everything I've learned. Um, it's kind of like my tunnel vision of what I'm trying to accomplish now. Um, and you never know when you get to a world cup, you learn a lot that you could have never learned testing in the off season. So there may be more changes that need to be made once that happens, but I would love to offer the frame for sale to people who are interested, to people who are following the, the whole story of this project. Um, once it's at a point that I'm proud to sell it, once it's at a point where I don't think that there's more things that we need to improve on it. And for sure you can't sit still with, uh, with any type of design, like a bike from four years ago is not going to be competitive with the bikes that just came out this year. But as long as at this point in time, there's not things on the bike that I think I still want to change that we need to improve. Then when we get it to that point, I would love to order a small production run of frames and, um, offer them for sale to people who are following along. And I think 
if they've been watching this, they probably are like-minded and um, can see, you know, maybe, maybe they're listening to everything I say and they think that's cool, but that doesn't work for me. And that they're not the person that who, who needs to buy my frame. But if they think that what I'm saying makes sense and would work for them, then um, it would be awesome to see them be able to get on one and, and feel what I feel and see if it works for them. So yeah, I, that that's the long-term goal. And I don't know, I don't want to be stuck to a time frame. I want to make sure that it is, the bike is as I want it before I try to go that route. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. I like it, man. I mean, it, it really does put you in a good position, right? Because if, if you're, you're designing a bike for yourself and your use case and, you know, once it's totally refined, you might take it to production, but you're not, you're not under these, you know, it's not like you have investors that are saying, Hey, this bike needs to be ready for production by this date. So it allows you to really refine and test and and make it the way you want before you ever take it to production. If you choose to do that in the future. So it puts you in a really good position, which, which is awesome. So that's cool. Well, um, yeah, thank you, Nico. Genuinely appreciate all your time and, you know, knowledge on this topic. And, and for those of you that are still listening, you can follow along. Nico is going to document, you know, all the rest of this stuff throughout the season on his YouTube channel on his Instagram. Uh, you can also hit worldwidecyclery.com slash Nico, N-E-K-O, to learn more about Nico and his project. And uh, we're going to try and keep that page up to date with everything that's going on and Nico's race results. And I don't know, anything else, Nico? Any, any final words or any other areas that people can follow along with this project? Um, yeah, as far as following along, I try to keep people up to date on, on my social media, Instagram primarily. And uh, we've been putting out this video series on YouTube where the goal is to make 12 videos that we just kind of planned out that would uh, cover the races that I'll be doing, the off-season testing, and just follow along as to how the whole project is progressing. So, yeah, you can follow things that way. And, um, yeah, I guess for everybody that's kind of listening to this and and hoping to take away some information, um, the one message I – I hope I was clear enough to explain is that um, everybody's going to have a a different application, what they're looking to get their bike to work for. And this, I hope that they can take what I said and think about what type of trails, what type of riding they do, and just use it as some education to make their next bike purchase or bike setup or or whatever it is they're trying to do. in their own best interest. Uh, you can't say the same thing is going to work for everyone. So, um, one thing I would encourage people to do is to try to be as consistent as you can with what you are, what you can control little things like tire pressure, checking your shock pressure or sag, whatever it is before you ride, um, getting your suspension serviced, making sure your bike's shifting properly and your, uh, clutching your derailleurs not worn out uh your chains lubed when you go ride it's all the little things that are sometimes easy to skip will ensure that you have a better experience when you i mean we all love to go ride our bike and you want to have the best the best experience you can in those hours that you have to ride it so doing those little things will make your experience a little better and um and and yeah there's there's a lot of information that goes into bike setup and and I'm passionate about it. I nerd out on it. It's exciting. Um, time disappears when I th- think about it. But I think 
the best thing that people can do is just get out and ride the bike that they have more often. Like what, whatever you could think about this all day or what you need to buy or what you need to do to, uh, to ride more. But, um, if you could just put your bike on your bike rack and go to the trail and ride it, that'll probably be the best thing that you can do. So, um, hopefully, hopefully people yep, resonate absolutely. with that. Yeah, cool. No, I, I agree with that as well. Well, thanks again, man. Appreciate all the in-depth knowledge. And for everyone listening, um, we'll put links in the show notes to uh, yeah, all the things that we mentioned. Um, Nico's name is N-E-K-O and it's M-U-L-A-L-L-Y. Did I get that right? Sounds good. Well, thanks a lot for having me on, Jeff. Appreciate it. Yeah, cool. Thank you, man. Talk to you next time. <laughs>